because I'd preach occasionally, I suppose is the right phrase to use there. A short book takes a long time to cover, so I have to recap every time just to put us back in, especially this time, seeing as the last time I preached, I, I, I digressed and went into Isaiah. And then before that, we were um, the other side of the, um, the lockdown and the COVID, so it's been some time since we've been into Haggai. In chapter 1, the exiles had returned home and they'd been slow in attending to the duty of rebuilding the temple. They'd sorted their houses out. They had nice, comfortable houses. The prophet Haggai challenged them, consider your ways. And the people considered their ways. The governor, the high priest, the people set to work and they started to build the temple. The first job, I suppose, really before building the temple would be to sort out the mess of the old temple, the ruins that had been left after it had been destroyed. So they'd had to have done a lot of uh, clearing up before they could even start to build. And that's perhaps why they were a little bit discouraged after their initial burst of enthusiasm to get going. We picked them up in chapter 2. Having started to build, the rebuke that came in chapter 1 is replaced by an encouragement in chapter 2. Verses 1 to 4, the prophet speaks again. The word of the Lord by the prophet. So clearly again, it's the Lord speaking. Who are left among you is seen saw this house in her first glory. How do you see it now in comparison? Is it as nothing? The people were discouraged. We've got a ruin here. We had a glorious temple. It's in ruins. But then the words are now, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, people. And work. And then this encouragement, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. You're not doing this on your own. I am with you. They needed the encouragement and they got the encouragement. I am with you. And we can draw comfort from that too. Be strong and work. And if we are doing the Lord's work in the right way, the Lord is with us. Verse 5 is also an encouragement. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not. So there's a double encouragement. Be encouraged, I am with you. Be encouraged because I promised that I would take you out of Egypt and I would take care of you as my nation, as my people. So they could be encouraged by that. Fear not, my spirit remains among you. I am with you, my spirit remains among you. But that would be an interesting encouragement, wouldn't it? Because they'd be starting to think, Yes, he covenanted, he brought us out of Egypt. Yes, he also covenanted and brought us out of Babylon. But they'd be challenged to think, well, hang on, how did we end up going into Babylon in the first place? Because we fell away. We were sinful, we fell away, and God withdrew himself from us. When they they were right with God, God was with them. 
So these encouragements are there. But if we read on, as we did in, 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 at, the, at the start there, through verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, the, the tone really seems to ramp up, doesn't it? Be strong, be encouraged, work, I am with you. But in a little time, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the land, and I'll shake all nations. It's not a, a gentle action, is it? A shaking. We've seen a real ramping up of tone there. But it's interesting, in those two, in that little passage, there are four verses, six, seven, and eight, and nine. There's a great deal of repetition. And I like to draw attention to repetition because I don't believe it is there um, for any purpose other than to remind us to, to pay attention. There's two things that stood out to me as I was reading verses 6, 7, 8 and 9 in terms of repetition. The first one is, for thus saith the Lord of hosts. Four verses, phrases used or the name is used five times. So what does that tell us? What does the Lord want us to take from this small passage? That the one who speaks is the Lord of hosts. Jehovah of hosts. The Lord of hosts is with us. And again, this is a title of strength, a title of grandeur, a title of his power. And it is repeated so that we don't forget that what is said in and amongst this can be done because he is almighty God, the Lord of hosts, the hosts of this world, the heavenly hosts, the angelic host, whatever hosts and any hosts you want to sort of put together, he is Lord and above all. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, five times in four verses, everything that happens in these verses is doable because it is the Lord of hosts who speaks. It's not Haggai, it's not the high priest, it's not the governor, it is the Lord of hosts. And the other thing that stood out to me when I was just reading through this is the word and. And that appeared eight times in, in, in six, in verses six, seven and eight. Now, whenever you, we, we, we read scriptures and we read the words that are on the page, and if you have an audio Bible, you can hear somebody else reading them for you and they read in a similar tone, don't they? Right through. I, I often wonder how, how these verses were written. What was the, the mind behind the writing? We, we'll never know. But for example, Mary's great prayer of praise. I don't believe that was my soul shall magnify the Lord. I kind of imagine it was a case of she was meditating upon these things and and the words just either burst out from her or or, or it was a, a hardly con containable in terms of her excitement and her joy. How how could you say something like that in a monotone way? My soul shall magnify the Lord for his regard to the lowest state of his handmaid. And that's, that's pure praise, isn't it? And it's a burst. I wonder how this little passage was written here because when you have an and 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 and, it, it, it compounds. It's not just one, it's more and more and more and it builds. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while and I will shake the heavens and the earth 
and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations and the desire of the, all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory saith the Lord of hosts the silver is mine and the gold is mine saith the Lord of hosts it's just building and building and building and what a great compound we have put together there and this is what the Lord of hosts is saying Verse 6 or verse 5 finishes with fear ye not. Verse 9, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Fear not, we will have a greater glory. Don't worry about the state of the temple now. Look for the greater glory. David, when he handed over effectively to Solomon the duty of building the temple, he told them to be courageous. To fear not, to be courageous. When Joshua took over from Moses, the Lord said unto him, be courageous. Fear not. And so it was for these people. Be courageous. Don't fear what's going on round about you. Look for the greater glory. And the greater glory is what we're going to focus on today. And there's three things that we can look for in these verses um, from um, 7, 8 and, and 9. The silver and the gold are his, is the first one. And then almost hidden in the middle of the shaking and, uh, of the nations is this phrase, the desire of all nations. And then just lastly there will be peace in this place. Those are three examples of the greater glory, Then we'll look at those today. Verse 8 says, The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. So we're in our context again, aren't we there? The Lord of hosts is saying this. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. So what do we know about the first temple that Solomon built? It was glorious. It was a thing of beauty, wasn't it? Externally, it had all of the silver and the gold and all of the finery. It was a glorious building. The glory of the Lord was in there. In the uh, in 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 the, the Ark of the Covenant was in there, and there were other great treasures. And this is where the Lord revealed Himself to His people. But it was ruins now. It was brick upon brick and probably got moss and weeds and all sorts growing in between what was left of it, what hadn't been ransacked. The silver is mine, saith the Lord. The gold is mine. Don't fear. Don't be discouraged. If I want a glorious temple, I will build a glorious temple. The resources of this world are his. There's a verse in, uh, a couple of verses in Chronicles, isn't there, that when, um, after David has just praised and glorified God and extolled what a great God he is, and it's a passage that, that Glenn quotes quite often. A few verses further down, we read that David is saying, well, whatever we are giving to you, Lord, it's yours already. We're just giving back to you what is yours. The earth is his. The cattle on a thousand hills is his. 
All the resources of this world are his. So, if he wants a glorious temple, he can gather the resources together to build a temple. But are they instructed to do so? They're instructed to fear not and to work, to do what they can with what they have. David, as we mentioned there before, passed over the duty of building the temple to Solomon because he was chosen to build a temple, whereas David wasn't because he was a man of war and Solomon was not a man of war. So did David sulk? Did David take umbrage because he wasn't to build the temple? He gathered the resources. He did as much as he could without actually building the temple. It was more or less ready to go, wasn't it, by the time it was handed to Solomon. Solomon was a rich man. He had the minds of this, that and the other, and he had resources at his disposal on this earth so he could carry on and build. But if you contrast David and Solomon's attitude to the attitude of uh, the exiles as they've returned home, as we read in chapter 1, were they gathering resources? Were they gathering to prepare for the building of the temple? Were they gathering resources for the Lord? Or were they gathering resources for their nice houses, their panelled walls, their comfortable dwellings? Is it time for you to build the temple while you dwell in your sealed houses? Consider your ways. So their hearts were wrong, whereas David's heart was right. I can't build the temple, but I'll do what I can. I'll do my very best. I'll gather the finest materials so that when we build the temple, it will be to God's glory. David prepared and gathered. The temple was to be built again, and the dimensions of this second temple apparently were not to be as big as the first temple. The, 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 the kings that the, uh, the Medes and Persians wouldn't allow them to build at the same scale. But that again works into God's plans, doesn't it? Because it's not about the physical temple. The glory was not about the actual building. The building didn't have to be bigger and better. What would be the danger of them building a better and bigger, more glorious temple? The danger would be that they would worship the temple and not God. And apparently, and I don't know if this is true or not, but uh, the, that's one of the, the things that's leveled against Herod. When he built the temple, he built it in a, in a glorious way so that the, to divert attention apparently to the temple and not to true worship. This is again signs of external glory, but not an inward glory. And this is where the true glory should be. It should be inward. It's not about the externals. We sang our first hymn this, this evening, O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, bow down before him, the Lord is his name, with gold of obedience and incense of lowliness. Kneel and adore him, the Lord is his name. These are the gold and silvers that God wants from us. Gold of obedience, silver of faithfulness, precious stones of of zealous good works for him 
He doesn't want the physical gold as such. We you talk about the wood, the hay and the stubble, don't we? And the, the gold and silver and the precious stones. These are the things that God wants. These are the important things. It's our obedience to him. It's our service to him. It is a pure heart right before God. The sacrifices that God wants are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. The silver and gold are his. He owns this earth. He owns the the materials, the minerals within the earth. Silver and gold are his in that we should be praising him and worshipping him by offering silver and gold of service and praise to him. We've got to be careful again for the external glory. What were the the Pharisees called? Whited sepulchres. White and pleasant on the outside, but inside dead man's bones. Also, the fact that the temple wouldn't be as glorious physically is a reminder for us to look forward and to not look back. Don't look back at the old temple, that doesn't matter. Look forward to the greater glory, the greater glory that is to come. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 7, and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come, and I'll fill this house with glory. The desire of all nations, in the midst of all of this shaking and all of this turmoil, we have this phrase, the desire of nations. Yet once, it is a little while, a little time, when I'm ready, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. So there will be a shaking. He'd already shaken Egypt and taken the people out. He'd literally shaken the earth with with the great flood. But soon, Babylon would be shaken, Assyria would be shaken, the Medes would be shaken, the Persians would be shaken, the Greeks would be shaken. Great empires built up, glorious, strong, shaken, destroyed. There's an interesting passage in in, in Hebrews chapter twenty, uh, chapter twelve, um, relating to the shakings here. I'll just read verses twenty six and twenty seven of chapter twelve of Hebrews. You can read a bit more context um, at home if you wish whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shall, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, and those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And that's an interesting point there, isn't it? He will shake things, but those which cannot be shaken will remain. And it's a sifting, isn't it? A sorting out, a taking away of the shaking and destroying that which does not stand. The wise man, we know, built his house upon the rock and that rock was not shaken. And that rock, Jesus Christ, the desire of the nations is Jesus Christ coming to fulfill his kingdom and to take his people to build his church and to Um, 
be head of that church. I've got a quote from John Calvin, um, which is quite a lengthy quote, so just bear with me as I read through it. After having mentioned the heaven and the earth, he now shows that he would arrest the attention of all mortals so as to turn them according to his will. In any way, it may please him. Come, he says, shall all nations. How? Because I shall shake them. Here again, the prophet teaches that men come not to Christ except by the wonderful agency of God. He might have spoken more simply, I will, le- I will lead all nations, as it is said elsewhere. But his purpose was to express something more, even that the impulse by which God moves, sorry, which God moves his elect to betake themselves to the fold of Christ is supernatural. Shaking seems a forcible act, lest men then should obscure the power of God by which they are roused, that they may obey Christ and submit to his authority. It is here by the prophet expressed by this term, in order that they might understand that the Lord does not work in a usual or common manner when they are thus changed. Quite a lengthy quote. Because I shall shake them. Here again the prophet teaches that men come not to Christ except by the wonderful agency of God. He shakes the nations, he shakes people to bring them to Christ. We read Luke chapter 2, didn't we, uh, uh, earlier on? And it's, uh, I'll just turn back to that, if, if I may. With Simeon, this old man who's been waiting patiently for the Lord's Christ, Lord, verse 29, Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people, Israel. So we have the two there, don't we? A light to lighten the Gentiles, this is new, and the glory of thy people, Israel. So Israel's not been cast off. The Jews have not been cast away, but the Gentiles have been brought in. There is one God over all, the desire of the nations. This also is interesting because this temple actually had a visitation from Jesus Christ. He went to fulfill his, or his parents took him to fulfill uh, the law of the time. He physically was in the temple, which glory was not seen in the first temple. Christ was in this new temple. But he was also in the new temple again. If we turn over to John chapter 2. And he purged the temple. Verse 13 of chapter 2. And the Jews, Passover was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changes of money sitting and when he had made a scourge of small cords he drove them out all out of the temple 
and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And then it carries on. This is quite interesting as well in reference to the, the temple. And the, then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou dost these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. So he was referring to himself there as the temple. Not the physical building, but he was the temple. And again, that reminds us that, uh, and we read in Corinthians, don't we? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we need to start to think about looking beyond the physical boundaries of the, the, the temple walls. So we have seen the silver is his, the gold is his. So he could build a glorious temple if he chose. The desire of the nations was to come. And that was a greater glory. And he says also in this uh, passage here that I will give peace. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. So sandwiched in between the Lord of hosts speaking twice is this phrase, in this place will I give peace. So amidst all of this shaking, I'll shake the land, I'll shake the seas, I'll shake the nations, and I will give peace. It's one of those sort of trite phrases, isn't it, today? World peace. We're waiting for world peace. We're not looking for world peace here. We are looking for peace with God. And it's what Les was touching on this morning in, in his um, message about being reconciled to God, being at peace with God. And this is the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter if we have peace between the Israel, Israel and the Arab nations. It doesn't matter if we have peace in, in, in um, former Yugoslavia, the Balkan states. These things don't matter ultimately. We would like them to be at peace, but we need to be at peace with God, they need to be at peace with God. And this can only be achieved through Jesus Christ, isn't it? Can't it? When I opened the service up, I, I read a, a verse from uh, Ephesians, which is also replicated through a number of Paul's letters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. It is peace with God that we must have through Jesus Christ. That is the only way we can have peace with God. By grace are you saved through faith. Not, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And that is what John Calvin was saying. That is only as God moves and gives us grace that we can be right with God. One of the compound names of Jehovah we read in the Old Testament when he appeared to, to Gideon. It's Jehovah Shalom. Jehovah sends peace. And he sends peace in the person of Jesus Christ. What did the angels declare when they announced the birth of Jesus? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace 
He was the one who was brought in to bring peace. To bring us peace, to peace with God. Peace on earth, goodwill to all men. What did Jesus say? Oftentimes after he'd healed somebody. Go in peace. Do I say go in peace or do I say your sins be forgiven you or you are healed? Go in peace. Did he mean just to go in peace? Ah, oh, my, my, my ailments are eased. I'm, I'm at rest. I can be at peace. No. Peace with God. Go in peace. Go <coughs> believing and trusting Jesus Christ. Leviticus chapter 3 is all about the peace offering. So the people had to go and make an offering to be at peace with God. Now that was a, a, a repeat exercise, wasn't it? They had to keep doing that on a regular basis. It was helpful for them because it pointed forward. It pointed forward to Jesus Christ. We don't offer peace offerings now because we don't have to, because it is finished. We have peace with God if we are Christians, if we trust in Jesus Christ alone, because he has satisfied the demands of the law. He has met the price that needed to be paid. So we have peace with God because he paid that price. In that place, I will give peace. So we've seen really a reminder of the greatness and the glory of God in that he is in overall control and all things are his. And that the other two great blessings point towards the coming, for them, the coming Messiah. But we look back on the, uh, the, the, the completed work of the Messiah. But we wait, don't we? We wait for him to come again and take us to be with him. Look outside of the temple. The glory wasn't in the temple. The temple was only a type to point forward to Christ. The Jews had a duty to build that first temple to a standard that God had set. They had a duty to worship in a way that God has set. We have a duty to worship Christ in a way that God has set. Love our Lord, our God, with all our hearts, our soul, our mind and our strength. And to love our neighbour as ourself. The gold and silver that we offer should be the best of our efforts. A right heart for God. We're not the best at anything that we do, are we? God doesn't ask us to be the best at anything that we do. God asks us to give our best. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might. So when we serve God, we must serve him with our whole hearts. It doesn't have to be the greatest piece of work ever, but it has to be our best efforts for him. Look at ourselves. Look into our own hearts. God's not fooled. God can see what we mean and what we do. But we must give to him our best. Do you work for God through a love for him? Do you work for God to be seen? to be working for him. Pharisees loved to be seen, didn't they? Praying. They would time their um, 
their, their efforts to be seen when it was time for prayer, that they made sure that they were in the marketplace, on street corners, public places. It's now time to pray. And I just happened to be in a public place again. Oh no, everybody can see me praying again. They were doing things to be seen. And we can be guilty of that, all of us, can't we? This Pharisee in us all. But do we do things for a love for him? Do we do our best? Do we serve God? Do we give him our best efforts for the right reasons? And I suppose the most important question to finish with then is, do you have peace with God? It doesn't matter about the world around you. It doesn't matter how comfortable you are in yourself. Do you have peace with God? Can you say, if the Lord came today, if he returned, how would it? How would you stand? Would you be ready to be called to be with him? And if not, then you need to examine yourself, look at your heart. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Confess your sins before him, before he comes again. This is the greater glory that Christ is coming. The glory is not in the temple. The glory is in Jesus Christ. Let's look to him. Let's worship him with all our hearts, our souls, our mind and our strength.